You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Last year, I began going through 2 Corinthians, and we've reached chapter 4, and I'm going to switch that and, and do that in the mornings. And just before we look at the particular verses I want us to look at this morning, I want to give you just a little bit of background about this. Uh, you can get more background by going online and listening to the previous sermons, but just to let you catch up if you like, if you've not been there or uh, more likely have forgotten. I think uh, one of the reasons for looking at Second Corinthians is we live in a culture and in a church where people are really, really confused. How do we do church? What is the church? How is it relevant to today's culture? To those who are not Christians, and maybe one or two people here, that question itself is uh, daft. We are, they say, after all, modern people, and we don't need the superstitions of our forefathers. But that itself is a shallow and superficial view. And dare I say, it's also an, an arrogant and an ignorant view. The good news of Jesus Christ is as relevant today as it was at the time of the New Testament the time of the Reformation, the time of the revival here in the 19th century. We, as we think about being the church in the 21st century in Dundee, we may have lots of different ideas and different strategies, but I just think it's just incredible how the Word of God is so relevant. This is a letter that's written to a church in Turkey 2,000 years ago, and I hope as we look through this, you will see just how amazingly relevant it is. Corinth itself had been a Roman society for over a hundred years. It was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, just as Dundee is the fourth largest city in the Scottish Empire. Um, it was on. It was a center of culture and trade, just like Dundee. Um, it was a military town. Uh, there were uh, Greeks, Western Europeans, Syrians, Asians, Egyptians, and Jews in the population. It was multicultural. It uh, had the Isthmian Games, which were in those days just as important, if not more important, than the Olympics. Um, it had a massive sports stadium, uh, otherwise known as Dens Park or Tanadice. It had two ports, Lecheon and Sencrie. The latter had a church, Romans uh, 16, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deaconess of the church in Syncrie. In religious terms, there were many gods, inverted commas, but the most famous was the Greek god, goddess Aphrodite. One of the other things is that Corinth was associated with sexual immorality. In fact, there was a verb, to Corinthianize, which meant to commit adultery. So it was a society that was highly commercialized and industrialized, it was multicultural, it was religious, and it was obsessed with sport and sex. You don't need to ask, how does that connect with Scotland today? You can read about how the church started uh, around the year AD 50 when Paul came, about 15 years after the death of Christ. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18, where Paul was not having a very successful mission. 
But the Lord came and spoke to him in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Paul stayed 18 months. A man called Apollos then took over. Peter, we know, was also in Corinth. There were divisions in the church. Some people said, I follow Paul. Others, I follow Apollos. Others, I follow Cephas. That's Peter. And still others were the super spiritual ones said, oh, I don't follow anyone. I just follow Christ. And there were divisions amongst all these groups. Paul had written to them a letter, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, before, before 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is not the first letter he wrote. I know that this gets a bit confusing. But uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, he says, I've written you in my letter, in my previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Because in the church in Corinth, there was uh, a particular case of sexual immorality where a man was sleeping with his stepmother and the congregation was saying, look how tolerant we are. We can cope with this. And Paul deals with that uh, and deals with the consequences of that in 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is really his fourth letter. Uh, as I said, it does get a little bit confusing. He wrote one in between 1 and 2 Corinthians as well. And uh, as a result of that, he received a visit from some people from the church, and they were very, very critical of him. Uh, he was finding enormous difficulty. Those of you who think the Christian church is a church of complete peace and harmony and there's never any hassle, you, you are either a very, very young convert or you haven't a clue because that's not the way that it is. In this letter, Paul has had to deal with personal criticisms, questions of ministry, finance, death, sickness, and plans for the future. First Corinthians had already dealt with marriage, food offered to idols, spiritual gifts, finance, incest, civil litigation, immorality, denial of the resurrection, and the role of women. This particular letter is Paul's most personal. He uh, does what um, our, our friends from the southern U.S. would say, open up your heart. Well, he opens up his heart and he tells them the struggles and, and how he deals with all of that. So we come to chapter 4, 2 Corinthians 4. I'm going to read from verse 7. And up to this point, Paul had defended himself against the accusations from within the church. And he's talked about the glory of Christ being revealed in the church and through the gospel. He's talked about how he was tempted to give up. He really had been tempted to give up. I was at a, a meeting of ministers this week in Creef and... Uh, it was very sobering to hear uh, Dominic Smart stand up and give a talk in which Dominic is pastor of a church in Aberdeen that used to belong to the Church of Scotland. They left and they've experienced a lot of trouble and a lot of difficulty. And he stood up and, and said how he had got to a point where he was offered a job elsewhere and he was so tempted to take it because he was so uh, discouraged. Well, Paul was like that. But he says in chapter 4, because the ministry we have is from God, we won't give up. We won't distort the word of God. We will preach Jesus as Lord, and we will pray that the light of Jesus will shine. And that sounds wonderful. You finish at verse 6 of chapter 4, it sounds wonderful. But verse 7 goes on to say this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, 
to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. The gospel is a fantastic treasure. That's what he's referring to here. The good news of Jesus Christ is a fantastic treasure. You're here, you're not a Christian, we tell you about Jesus. It's the most wonderful treasure that you will ever receive. It's the most wonderful news you will ever get. The problem is that the gospel is contained in jars of clay, as Paul puts it. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means this. It means we are weak and fragile. The jars of clay that's referred to here were pottery lamps, that were bought in the marketplace, and they were easily expendable. These were not fancy um, ornaments, or they were not, you know, rocks. How will I put it? These are Lidl's plastic glasses, okay? It's Lidl and Aldi. These are not Waitrose, okay? These, are, these were cheap and expendable. You break them, it's no problem. You just throw them away because that's what's going to happen to them anyway. They were inexpensive and easily broken and they were not particularly attractive. The only thing that mattered was that they could hold light. They could hold the candle. It's an image that's used in other parts of the Bible. Psalm 30, for example, verse 12. I am forgotten by them as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery. Paul says we are not strong. We are very weak people. Um, New Year got off to an interesting start for us because when we left the New Year's Day service here, uh, we got hit by an Aberdeen fan. Uh, I don't know why I said he was Aberdeen. That's completely irrelevant. We got hit by a car uh, coming uh, to the game against Dundee United and um, not that particularly fast. But you're in your car and it seems quite comfortable and everything and you seem quite secure. It just crumpled and burnt a bit and so on. I mean, it's, it's, it's a wreck. And you realize, wow, it, things are just it's so fragile. It's so fragile. It's like um, Paul speaks about these vessels. I can't remember which one it is, but one of the Indiana Jones films where he goes in for the Holy Grail and they find the Holy Grail and, you know, they meet the, the, the um, knight who's been alive for 600 years or whatever and of course, there's the nasty German and the uh, greedy American and all the other stuff that is going on, all the stereotypes that are, that are in there. But they go in and the knight says, well, choose. And there are lots of grails or lots of cups that are there. And some are gold and, and, and so on. And um, the, the greedy American goes and takes the shiniest, brightest one and fills it up with water and drinks it and has the reverse effect, you know, and he grows old very quickly and dies and shrivels into, uh, it's Indiana Jones, so don't expect too much reality. But, of course, Indiana works it out. He sees a simple wooden cup in the midst of all this gold, and he says that's what a carpenter would have, a simple wooden cup. And so he takes it. And in a way, that's actually a pretty good illustration of what Paul is trying to say here. He says, 
we are ordinary people. We are not superheroes. We are not celebrities. We are normal. We are fragile. Paul himself, I don't know what image you have of the Apostle Paul, but the only descriptions that we have of him, and it's very limited, would indicate that he's a, he was a short man, that he was not particularly attractive, and that he was not a very good speaker. And people in Corinth, there were new teachers coming along, and they were very attractive. They had the shiny teeth. They had everything going for them. You know, they were tan. They had everything. And, and, and there's Paul, the wee man. And people say, oh, he's not very impressive. We don't want him. We prefer these people. They're strong. They're impressive. And Paul says, no, I may be contemptible in the eyes of this world, even silly and ridiculous. But that's what you were. 1 Corinthians 1, 26, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Now, these cheap, inexpensive bits of pottery may not have been particularly attractive. But actually, there is an attractiveness in terms of us as Christians when we grasp and realize how weak and fragile we are and what a great treasure the gospel is it makes an enormous difference to how we behave and to our characters. Um, I really know how to live it up, so I took my wife to see a movie about fly fishing on, on Friday. Uh, now, to some of you, that just sounds absolutely horrendous. There are one or two of you here who are geeks who are going, yes, fly fishing, I, oh, that's my dream. Um, fly fishing is great, but a movie, it wasn't even about fly fishing, it was a movie about fly tying, tying the flies that make, and you think, that has got to be the dullest. I'd sooner watch a whole test series of cricket or something. You know, that's got to be like watching paint dry. I mean, it, surely not. It's on till Thursday. Go see it. Kiss the water, it's called. Now, for us, it was very special because it was about a woman we knew, a woman called Megan Boyd who lived in Brora. Uh, she was quite a character. She'd come to the church. She always dressed as a man. She had a tie and a tweed jacket. She lived on her own, um, didn't have a phone. Uh, she was quite an eccentric character, but a lovely, humble, and gracious person in lots of ways. And she taught herself to tie flies, and she became the best fly tire in the world. And this little croft house that she had in between Brora and Helmsdale, it was incredible that um, people from all over the world came, and because she didn't have to have a phone, they had to go to her house. And regularly, she never told people about this, not until uh, towards the end of her days, Prince Charles popped in to see Meghan to get flies done, and she got an MBE for this, of course. Uh, And, you know, it it really is quite an extraordinary story, but it's beautifully, beautifully filmed with the, the scenery of the highlands, with the fish, and uh, what I liked best of all was interviews with people, real people, um, and people who we knew as well, and it was just, it's an extraordinary film. But what got me when I was thinking about that and thinking about this is that 
Well, I loved a couple of things. I loved the fact she used to leave the house every Sunday so that she wouldn't have to tie flies for people because Sunday was the Lord's Day. So she'd just go away. And I love the fact that when she got her MBE, she wrote to the Queen, Dear, on the film it said Lizzie, I, I can't imagine her saying Lizzie, but Dear Elizabeth or Dear Lizzie, thanks for the honor, but I cannot come to London to collect my MBE because I have bridge on Saturday and I have to look after my dog. And she absolutely meant it. And I, I, I just love that. I love the attitude, the, the way that uh, she treated people, and the way that actually she was honored. Now, the reason I mention that is just, I think God takes the lowly things of this world and puts the treasure of the gospel in there. Megan had a, a particular skill, a particular talent, and was just very self-effacing with it all. I think what God does with us is he doesn't choose the particularly, you know, the, the strong, the rich, the powerful, the mega intellects. Yes, sometimes he does, but it's despite of those things rather than because of them. But he takes the weak and the lowly and puts the treasure of the gospel in us. Now, Paul goes on to give four examples of that, four examples of, of how we cope when we realize that we are jars of clay. Back in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8, he says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Here is the Apostle Paul saying, speaking about himself, speaking about Luke, speaking about Barnabas, saying we were under so much pressure that we felt we were going to die, and we wanted to die. We wanted to give up. And he lists in these verses four things. We are hard-pressed, but not crushed. You'll find that often in the psalmist, Psalm 34, 19. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Now, the image that Paul uses here is, is one that you will be familiar with. It's of walls closing in. Paul was from a place called Tarsus. Around Tarsus, there were cliffs which came very close to one another. And as you walked along them, you had this sense of being closed in and being pressured. So Paul is saying here, we are weak vessels, we come under strain, we come under pressure. We feel enormously pressured, stressed, and strained. And I know that you and I often feel like that. There are times when we're in a spacious place. There are times when the hills are alive with the sound of music and we're, we're do-a-deering and all that kind of stuff, singing and, and, and dancing and everything's great and free and wonderful. But there are other times where you feel as though you are being squeezed. And Paul says we are hard-pressed, but we are not crushed. He says we are perplexed, but not in despair. Mentally, he thought he was going to lose his life. He's saying, what's going on? Can you imagine? He's going 
to God. He said, I, you told me there were many people yet in this city. I believed you. I preached the word. Many people became Christians. And they became this church. And then this church is just going to the dogs. What is going on? What is happening? How can this be occurring? What is God doing? And I know again that some of us can get very perplexed by what is happening. Lord, I prayed that my friend would get better, that my husband would get better, that my, my children would not go astray. And it seems that the more that I prayed, the worse they got. What is going on? I prayed for the church. I asked for your blessing on the church. Surely you want that. And yet things seem to be falling apart. What is going on? They're perplexed. Sometimes as a Christian, you see things clearly. You understand what's happening. You've got mental, intellectual clarity. But other times, it's like being in a fog and you just don't know what's happening. Paul says we're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. The word used for persecuted there is a word that means harassed, like chasing a deer. It's like you are the deer being chased. Jesus told us this would happen. Mark 4, 17, since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution come because of the word, they quickly fall away. We will at times find ourselves facing severe opposition precisely because we are Christians. We shouldn't go look for it. We shouldn't stir it up. We shouldn't encourage it. But it will happen. All who will live a godly life in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But he says, we are not abandoned. The only one who was abandoned was Christ. On the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? We are never forsaken precisely because he was forsaken. And then the fourth thing he says, we are struck down but not destroyed. It's that, I can't remember even the name of the group, but the song, I get knocked down but I get up again. Um, That's exactly what he's saying. He's saying you just bang, you get flattened. Things are going along fine and then you got hit and things crumple. You get thrown to the ground but you can't keep the gospel down. Now, interestingly, that's what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that you can't keep me down. He's not saying, I'm Paul. I've I've just got this character that I get up. You know, you can knock me down and I'm going to get up. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's because of the gospel. And you'll note that what Paul is saying here is that whatever troubles believers may face in this world, there is always a but not. So we are hard pressed, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not in despair. We are persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We are struck down, but we're not destroyed. Whatever situation you find yourself in, as a Christian, you can look and you can say, it is really, really bad, and it is really hurting, and it is really confusing me, but because there is always good for the believer in that. And Paul goes on to say what that is in his situation. He says that he's continually exposed to death. His life is a constant struggle, but at the same time, Christ's life 
works within him. He experiences the life of Christ in and through him. He says, we are being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. Now, you can understand that as actually meaning that there there were Christians who physically died who were martyred. And Tertullian understood it that way when he said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's really interesting that uh, people think when they persecute Christians or they kill Christians that they kill off the church. It's almost the very, very opposite. But I think he's talking here about something much wider than that. I think he's talking about our fragile bodies. You know, you're in your car, and because you've got the illusion of security, it's fine until you crash and it crumples. You're in your body, and because you're relatively healthy, because the only sickness you've really had has been a virus occasionally or a cold, you think, this is great, I can go on forever. And then you lose your health. You get cancer, you age, or whatever. And it just, it really, really hits you. How can you be so fragile? How can it be that that tiny baby out of the womb is actually really no less fragile than you are? How, how, is, that, how is it possible for us to live with that knowledge? Paul says for the believer, it's in these fragile bodies that the life of Jesus is shown and is demonstrated to them. Paul says, this is for you. This is for you. It's the best antidote to life's misery. Death, I think, here stands not just for the end of life, but for all life's afflictions. Life stands for all that is prosperous and agreeable. To live is to live well. And Paul says this, the power of the gospel is not in its messengers, but in its message. So we don't lose heart. Some people have got great packaging. Others have got a great package. Some people have got really glossy paper all around. But it's what is the treasure that counts. There's a a song Many will know, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Actually, when you think about it from a Christian perspective, that's actually wrong. It's not your light that shines. Your light can be snuffed out just like that. It's the gospel that shines. The gospel that shines through this weak, fragile body, mind, and soul. And it's the good news of Jesus Christ that says this very body is going to be raised. This weak mind, this corrupt soul is going to be purified. And God is going to take our weakness and make it perfect in his strength. And that's why when a Christian says, well, I'm I'm strong, I'm strong in my faith and I'm strong in my mind, I'm strong in my body. I believe that God has given me all this. Well, that may be true. But your greatest strength is still weakness. 
You can be as strong as an ox, you're still going into the grave. You can be the brightest intellect in the world, and you still won't understand and grasp everything that God is doing. You can be emotionally solid and, you know, perfectly happy, and yet you really have no idea what real joy is. I love the fact that God takes someone like William Cowper, who was a depressive, a manic depressive, who went through such blackness and darkness. McShane, the same here, doubted very, very much whether he was right with God. At one point, he stopped writing in his diary because it was so dark for him. And that God takes these people, and he takes the weak, and he gives us the gospel. And the gospel is not made weaker because we're weak. It works the other way around. So you might be tempted to despair at your frailty when you become aware of it, and to despair at your weakness. But don't. Why not be stunned that God has put such a wonderful treasure in you? It's a worthwhile prayer, a good prayer to pray, Lord, show me how weak I am and show me how glorious you are. Show me how wonderful the gospel is. When you grasp that, then there's nothing that can happen to you that will take away from that glory. Not a thing. Nothing that can disrupt and destroy your ultimate happiness. But if you hold on to any aspect of your own strength or your own glory or your own abilities, these can and all will fade and you will lose. Now, paradoxically, this is not to say, oh, we're completely worthless. It's the other way around. It's because Christ dwells in us. It's because Christ has given us his good news that we have this immense value. We are given eternal life, and we shall never perish. I don't think that intellectually or emotionally we grasp that. I think we say it like we would say a catechism question, but I don't think we grasp it, and we need to grasp it and to understand it. I finish just simply by reading this from Romans 8. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced 
that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we are weak and frail. We are jars of clay. And yet, you put in us that wonderful treasure of the gospel, your Holy Spirit. We bless you, our God, that the gospel and its power, the good news of Jesus, does not depend on our ability to communicate it or our ability to live it but that just by grace you grant it to us. We are saved by faith, and that not from ourselves. It is your gift that we may do the good works that you have prepared in advance for us to do. And Lord, some of us are here, and we are weary. We are tired. We are discouraged. We are confused. We are perplexed. We are broken. We are deeply conscious of our fragility. But we are not in despair. We are not in distress. We are not crushed and we are not destroyed. Because you are God and it's your gospel and we are your people. Oh Lord, Grant that all of us would see that. Grant that your broken people would be healed. Grant that we may see that even in our very brokenness, it's your strength that's being made perfect. As we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, may we know you, you with us. We pray that you would be our rock, our rock of ages. And Lord, thank you that you take the weak and the lowly and the despised and the poor and the ignorant and you lift us up to a height that angels wander at and that we cannot ever be lost. Lord, may that assurance be in us and grant, O oh God, that if any here do not know you, that they would cry out to you to save you, because otherwise they too will one day experience that perplexity and that stress and that brokenness, but there will be no healing. There will only be a crushing. Lord, help each one of us to place our faith and our trust totally in you. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, 
please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.